Prologue of A Bid for Fortune or Dr. Nicola's Vendetta. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Bid for Fortune or Dr. Nicola's Vendetta by Guy Boothby. Prologue Dr. Nicola. The manager of the new imperial restaurant on the Thames Embankment went into his luxurious private office and shut the door. Having done so, he first scratched his chin reflectively, and then took a letter from the drawer in which it had reposed for more than two months, and perused it carefully. Though he was not aware of it, this was the thirtieth time that he had read it since breakfast that morning, and yet he was not a whit nearer understanding it than he had been at the beginning. He turned it over and scrutinised the back, where not a sign of writing was to be seen. He held it up to the window, as if he might hope to discover something from the watermark, but there was nothing in either of these places of a nature calculated to set his troubled mind at rest. Then he took a magnificent repeater watch from his waistcoat pocket, and glanced at the dial. The hand stood at half-past seven. He immediately threw the letter on the table, and as he did so his anxiety found relief in words. It really is the most extraordinary affair I've ever had to do with, he remarked. And as I've been in the business just three and thirty years at 11 a.m. next Monday morning, I ought to know something about it. I only hope I've done right, that's all. As he spoke, the chief bookkeeper, who had the treble advantage of being tall, pretty, and just eight and twenty years of age, entered the room. She noticed the open letter and the look upon her chief's face, and her curiosity was proportionally excited. "'You seem worried, Mr. Macpherson,' she said tenderly, as she put down the paper she had brought in for his signature. "'You have just hit it, Miss O'Sullivan,' he answered, pushing them further onto the table. "'I am worried about many things, but particularly about this letter.' He handed the epistle to her, and she, being desirous of impressing him with her business capabilities, read it with ostentatious care. But it was noticeable that when she reached the signature she too turned back to the beginning and then deliberately read it over again. The manager rose, crossed to the mantelpiece, and rang for the head waiter. Having relieved his feelings in this way, he seated himself again at his writing table, put on his glasses, and stared at his companion while waiting for her to speak. Very funny, she said, very funny indeed. It's the most extraordinary communication I've ever received, he replied with conviction. You see, it's written from Cuyaba, Brazil. The date is three months ago to a day. Now I have taken the trouble to find out where and what Cuyaba is. He made this confession with an air of conscious pride, and having done so, laid himself back in his chair, stuck his thumbs into the armholes of his waistcoat, and looked at his fair subordinate for approval. Nor was he destined to be disappointed. He was a bachelor in possession of a snug income, and she, besides being pretty, was a lady with a keen eye to the main chance. And where is Cuyaba? she asked humbly. Cuyaba, he replied, rolling his tongue with considerable relish around his unconscious mispronunciation of the name, is a town almost on the western or Bolivian border of Brazil. It is of moderate size, it is situated on the banks of the river Cuyaba, and is considerably connected with the famous Brazilian diamond fields. And does the writer of this letter live there? cannot say he writes from there that's enough for us 
and he orders dinner at four here in a private room overlooking the river three months ahead punctually at eight o'clock gives you a list of all the things he wants and even arranges the decoration of the table says he has never seen either of his three friends before that one of them hails from here she consulted the letter again hang cho another from bloemfontein while the third resides at present in england each one is to present an ordinary visiting card with a red dot on it to the porter in the hall and to be shown to the room at once i don't understand it at all the manager paused for a moment then said deliberately hang chow is in china bloemfontein is in south africa what a wonderful man you are to be sure mr macpherson i never can think how you manage to carry so much in your head there spoke the true woman and it was a move in the right direction for the manager was susceptible to her gentle influence as she had occasion to know at this juncture the head waiter appeared upon the scene took up a position just inside the doorway as if he were afraid of injuring the carpet by coming any further is number twenty two ready williams quite ready sir the wine is on the ice the cook tells me he'll be ready to dish punctual to the moment the letter says no electric light candles with red shades have you put on those shades i got this morning just seen it done this very minute sir and let me see there was one other thing he took the letter from the chief bookkeeper's hand and glanced at it ah oh, yes a porcelain saucer and a small jug of new milk upon the mantelpiece an extraordinary request but has it been attended to put it there myself sir who wait jones edmonds brooks and tomkins very good then i think that will do stay you had better tell the hall porter to look out for three gentlemen presenting plain visiting cards with a little red spot on them let brooks wait in the hall and when they arrive tell him to show them straight up to the room it shall be done sir the head waiter left the room and the manager stretched himself in his chair yawned by way of showing his importance and then said solemnly i don't believe they'll any of them turn up but if they do this dr nicola whoever he may be won't be able to find any fault with my arrangements then leaving the dusty high road of business he and his companion wandered into the shady bridle paths of love to the end that when the chief bookkeeper returned to her own department she had forgotten the strange dinner party about to take place upstairs and was busily engaged upon a calculation as to how she would look in white satin and orange blossoms and that settled fell to wondering whether it was true as miss joyce the subordinate had been heard to declare that the manager had once shown himself partial to a certain widow with reputed savings and a share in an extensive egg and dairy business at ten minutes to eight precisely a hansom drew up at the steps of the hotel as soon as it stopped an undersized gentleman with a clean-shaven countenance and a canonical corporation and bow legs dressed in a decidedly clerical garb alighted he paid and discharged his cabman and then took from his ticket pocket an ordinary white visiting card which he presented to the gold-laced individual who had opened the apron the latter having noted the red spot called a waiter and the reverend gentleman was immediately escorted upstairs hardly had the attendant time to return to his station in the hall before a second cab made its appearance closely followed by a third out of the second jumped a tall active well-built man of about thirty years of age he was dressed in evening dress of the latest fashion 
and to conceal it from the vulgar gaze wore a large inverness cape of heavy texture he also in his turn handed a white card to the porter and having done so proceeded into the hall followed by the occupant of the last cab who had closely copied his example this individual was also in evening dress but it was of a different stamp it was old-fashioned and had seen much use the wearer too was taller than the ordinary run of men while it was noticeable that his hair was snow-white and that his face was deeply pitted with smallpox after disposing of their hats and coats in an ante-room they reached room number twenty-two where they found the gentleman in a clerical costume pacing impatiently up and down left alone the tallest of the trio who for want of a better title we may call the best-dressed man took out his watch and having glanced at it looked at his companions gentlemen he said with a slight american accent it's three minutes to eight o'clock my name is eastover i'm glad to hear it for i'm most uncommonly hungry said the next tallest whom i have already described as being so marked by disease my name is prendergast we only wait for our friend and host remarked the clerical gentleman as if he felt he ought to take a share in the conversation and then as an afterthought he continued my name is baxter they shook hands all round with marked cordiality seated themselves again and took it in turns to examine the clock have you ever had the pleasure of meeting our host before asked mr baxter of mr prendergast never replied that gentleman with a shake of his head perhaps mr eastover here has been more fortunate not i was the brief rejoinder i've had to do with him off and on for longer than i care to reckon but i've never set eyes on him up to date and where may he have been the first time you heard from him in nashville tennessee said eastover after that to hoopapa new zealand after that papiete in the society islands and then pekin china and you first time round brussels second montevideo third mandalay and then the gold coast africa it's your turn mr baxter the clergyman glanced at the timepiece it was exactly eight o'clock first time kabul afghanistan second ninji novogod russia third wilcania darling river australia fourth valpasario chile fifth nagasaki japan he is evidently a great traveller and a most mysterious person he's more than that said eastover with conviction he's late for dinner prendergast looked at his watch that clock is two minutes fast hark there goes big ben eight exactly as he spoke the door was thrown open and a voice announced dr nicola the three men sprang to their feet simultaneously with exclamations of astonishment as the man they had been discussing made his appearance it would take more time than i can spare the subject to give you an adequate and inclusive description of the person who entered the room at that moment in stature he was slightly above the ordinary his shoulders were broad his limbs were perfectly shaped and plainly muscular but very slim his head which was magnificently set upon his shoulders was adorned with a profusion of glossy black hair his face was destitute of beard or moustache and was of oval shape and handsome moulding while his skin was of a dark olive hue a colour which harmonised well with his piercing black eyes and pearly teeth his hands and feet were small and the greatest dandy must have admitted that he was irreproachably dressed with a neatness that bordered on the puritanical 
In age he might have been anything from eight and twenty to forty. In reality he was thirty-three. He advanced into the room and walked with outstretched hand directly across to where Eastover was standing by the fireplace. "'Mr. Eastover, I feel certain,' he said, fixing his glittering eyes upon the man he addressed, and allowing a curious smile to play upon his face. "'That is my name, Dr. Nicola,' the other answered, with evident surprise. "'But how on earth can you distinguish me from your other guests?' "'That oh, would be a surprise if you knew. "'Mr. Prendergast and Mr. Baxter, this is delightful. "'I hope I'm not late. "'I had a collision in the channel this morning, "'and I was almost afraid I might not be up to time.' Dinner seems ready. Shall we sit down to it? They seated themselves, and the meal commenced. The Imperial Restaurant has earned an enviable reputation for doing things well, and the dinner that night did not in any way detract from its luster. But, delightful as it all was, it was noticeable that the three guests paid more attention to their host than to his excellent menu, as they had said before his arrival. They had all had dealings with him for several years but what those dealings were they were careful not to describe. It was more than possible that they hardly liked to remember themselves. When coffee had been served, and the servants had withdrawn, Dr. Nicola rose from the table and went across to the massive sideboard. On it stood a basket of very curious shape and workmanship. This he opened, and as he did so, to the astonishment of his guests, an enormous cat, as black as his master's coat, leapt out onto the floor. The reason for the saucer and the jug of milk became evident. Seating himself at the table again, the host followed the example of his guests and lit a cigar, blowing a cloud of smoke luxuriously through his delicately chiselled nostrils. His eyes wandered round the cornice of the room, took in the pictures and the decorations, and then came down to meet the faces of his companions. As they did so, the black cat, having finished its meal, sprang onto his shoulder to crouch there, watching the three men through the curling smoke drift with its green-blinking, fiendish eyes. Dr. Nicholas smiled as he noticed the effect the animal had upon his guests. "'Now shall we get to business?' he said briskly. The others almost simultaneously knocked the ashes off their cigars and brought themselves to attention. Dr. Nicholas' dainty, languid manner seemed to drop from him like a cloak. His eyes brightened, and his voice when he spoke was clean-cut as chiselled silver. "'You are doubtless anxious to be informed why I summoned you from all parts of the globe to meet me here to-night, and it is very natural you should be. But then, from what you know of me, you should not be surprised at anything I do.' His voice dropped back into its old tone of gentle languor. He drew in a great breath of smoke and then sent it slowly out from his lips again. His eyes were half closed, and he drummed with one finger on the table edge. The cat looked through the smoke at the three men, and it seemed to them that he grew every moment larger and more ferocious. Presently his owner took him from his perch, and seating him on his knee fell to stroking his fur from head to tail, with long slim fingers. It was as if he were drawing inspiration for some deadly mischief from the uncanny beast. To preface what I have to say to you, let me tell you that this is by far the most important business for which I have ever required your help. Three slow strokes down the centre of the back, and one round each ear. When it first came into my mind, I was at a loss who to trust in the matter. I thought of Venden, 
but I found Vendon was dead. I thought of Brownlow, but Brownlow was no longer faithful. Two strokes down the back and two on the throat. Then bit by bit I remembered you. I was in Brazil at the time, so I sent for you. You came. So far, so good. He rose and crossed over to the fireplace. As he went, the cat crawled back to its original position on his shoulder. Then his voice changed once more into its former business-like tone. I'm not going to tell you very much about it. From what I do tell you, you'll be able to gather a great deal and imagine the rest. To begin with, there is a man living in this world today who has done me a great and lasting injury. What that injury is, is no concern of yours. You would not understand it if I told you, so we'll leave that out of the question. He is immensely rich. His cheque for 300000 would be honoured by his bank at any minute. Obviously, he is a power. He has had reason to know that I am pitting my wits against his, and he flatters himself that so far he has got the better of me. That is because I am drawing him on. I am maturing a plan which will make him a poor and a very miserable man at once and the same time. If that scheme succeeds, and I am satisfied with the way you three men have performed the parts I shall call on you to play in it, I shall pay to each of you the sum of £10,000. If it doesn't succeed, then you will each receive a thousand and your expenses. Do you follow me? It was evident from their faces that they hung upon his every word. But remember, I demand from you your whole and entire labour. While you are serving me, you are mine, body and soul. I know you are trustworthy. I have had good proof that you are, pardon the expression, unscrupulous, and I flatter myself you are silent. What is more, I should tell you nothing beyond what is necessary for the carrying out of my scheme, so that you could not betray me if you would. Now for my plans. He sat down again and took a paper from his pocket. Having perused it, he turned to Eastover. You will leave at once, that is to say, by the boat on Wednesday, for Sydney. You will book your passage tomorrow morning, first thing, and join her in Plymouth. You will meet me tomorrow evening at an address I will send you, and receive your final instructions. Good night. Seeing that he was expected to go, Eastover rose, shook hands, and left the room without a word. He was too astonished to hesitate or say anything. Nicola took another letter from his pocket and turned to Prendergast. You will go down to Dover tonight, cross to Paris tomorrow morning, and leave this letter personally at the address you will find written on it. On Thursday, at half-past two precisely, you will deliver me an answer in the porch at Charing Cross. You will find sufficient money in that envelope to pay all your expenses. Now go. At half-past two, you shall have your answer. Good night. Good night. When Prendergast had left the room, Dr. Nicola had lit another cigar and turned his attention to Mr. Baxter. Six months ago, Mr. Baxter, I found for you a situation as tutor to the young Marquis of Beckenham. You still hold it, I suppose? I do. Is the father well disposed towards you? In every way. I have done my best to ingratiate myself with him. That was one of your instructions. Yes, yes, but I was not certain that you would succeed. If the old man is anything like what he was when I last met him, he must still be a difficult person to deal with. Does the boy like you? I hope so. Have you brought me his photograph as I directed? I have. Here it is. Baxter took a photograph from his pocket and handed it across the table. Good. You've done very well, Mr. Baxter. I'm pleased with you. Tomorrow morning you will go back to Yorkshire. I beg your pardon. Bournemouth. 
His Grace owns a house near Bournemouth, which he occupies during the summer months. Very well, then. Tomorrow morning you will go back to Bournemouth and continue to ingratiate yourself with the father and son. You will also begin to implant in the boy's mind a desire for travel. Don't let him become aware that his desire has its source in you, but do not fail to foster it all you can. I will communicate with you further in a day or two. Now go. Baxter in his turn left the room. The door closed. Dr. Nicola picked up the photograph and studied it. The likeness is unmistakable, or it ought to be, my friend, my very dear friend. Wetherell, my toils are closing on you. My arrangements are perfecting themselves admirably. Presently, when all this is complete, I shall press the lever, the machinery will be set in motion, and you will find yourself being slowly but surely ground into powder. Then you will hand over what I want, and be sorry you thought fit to bulk Dr. Nicola. He rang the bell and ordered his bill. This duty discharged, he placed the cap back in its prison, shut the lid, descended with the basket to the hall, and called a hansom. The porter inquired to what address he should order the cabman to drive. Dr. Nicola did not reply for a moment. Then he said, as if he had been thinking something out, The Green Sailor Public House, East India Dock Road. End of Prologue